Well, our second scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We're going to look at verses 57 through 68. And you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1545. Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it find that they no longer stand condemned because of what their condemned Savior did for them. What does it take to condemn a man? What is necessary to find a man guilty? In our human system of justice, either there needs to be evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the man who is accused committed the crime, or there needs to be a confession. Because we as human beings are a fallen race, we, we need a system of justice in place in order to protect the innocent those who are wrongfully accused. We need some type of structure that will, will overcome man's biases and, and our limited knowledge. But even then, even with such a system in place, we, we sometimes get it wrong, do we not? But in the, in the court of God, there, there are no mistakes. For when he sits in judgment... He, he knows all and he sees all. He knows all the facts. He knows all the details. And he even knows the very motives of a human heart. And so when he condemns a man, there can be no question as to that man's guilt. In our scripture today, we will see this dichotomy between our human form of justice and the justice of God, between a, a corrupt system 
and a judge who knows all and sees all. And we will see how God will use the, the injustice of men to bring about his own perfect justice. We are now in our fourth week of our sermon series entitled Necessary. A series that, that will span these last three chapters in, in Matthew's Gospel. For it is there that we will discover all the things that are necessary in order that, that God needed to carry out in order for his redemptive plan for mankind to be fulfilled. And if you recall, the, the very first thing we saw was the necessity of God's will in this redemptive plan. He must be the one who, who desires our salvation. For if it was up to us, if it was up to our will, we would neither want it nor choose it. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the Last Supper. As Christ established a new covenant with his disciples. You see, the old covenant was, was unable to rescue us from our sins. And the reason that was the case was because it was reliant upon our own obedience to the law. But this new covenant, which was established in Jesus' blood, it is capable of justifying us in the eyes of God. And not because of anything that we did, but because of everything that Christ did. You see, this, this new covenant is not dependent on the ability of man. No, it is dependent on the ability of the God-man, the one who demonstrated perfect obedience to the law of his Father and who became that worthy sacrifice. And then last week, we, we saw the necessity of a submissive Savior as Jesus surrendered himself to his Father's will. And even though that meant that he would have to drink the cup of God's wrath, a, a cup that was meant for us, he did so anyways because of his love for us. And now today we're going to look at a, at a fourth necessity, a fourth thing that is essential in God's redemptive plan, the necessity of a condemned Savior. Let's see why this is important. Look at, look at verses 57 and 58. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, if you remember from last week, Jesus had been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane by an armed mob in the middle of the night. You see, these men, they desired the secrecy of the darkness that the darkness provided. And the reason they wanted that was because they were afraid of the large crowds in Jerusalem during Passover. And so they came out in the middle of the night when no one else would know, with clubs, with swords, thinking that they might need those to arrest this man. They might need to use violent ends to take this man in. 
But they did not need those clubs. They did not need those swords. Instead, what they found was a willing Jesus ready to go with them, even though he knew that this was an unlawful arrest. Well, for our Lord, this horrific night was just beginning. As we'll see that he is now, has now been brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, as a high priest, Caiaphas, he, he would have been a wealthy, wealthy man. Very rich. And so his home would have been this massive house, kind of shaped in, in, in a square. And in the center of this house, there, there would have been this open courtyard able to host large gatherings. It would be there where the, the Sanhedrin would gather, these religious leaders who held the highest authority in all of Israel. They would be the ones to, who would oversee this trial of our Lord. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, well why are these details so important? You know, who cares where they took Jesus or the fact that it was in the middle of the night? Why does this matter? Well, they are important because this was not normal protocol. This was not how a, a, a typical trial of, a, of the Sanhedrin would, would have been handled. Let me explain. First, trials of these sort, they, they were supposed to be conducted during the day. And the reason that it would be conducted during the day was that witnesses could be easily summoned during that time. But this trial, it, it took place in the middle of the night. And as we'll soon see, the, the witnesses that were brought forward, they would, they would only be witnesses that, that were chosen by the Sanhedrin. They would be false witnesses. Second, any trial conducted by this council was supposed to occur at the temple court and not in some private home. This was supposed to be a public hearing, not private. Again, the, the, the fact that this was taking place in Caiaphas's house was, was their way of limiting the knowledge of this trial in order to control the outcome. You see, expedience, expediency is what motivated these men. They wanted to be prompt in their decision. Lest word get out and those who sympathized with Jesus came to his rescue. Lest more witnesses came to his defense, causing this trial to be this long and drawn out affair. Now these tactics that we are seeing were, were actually pretty commonplace among the Sadducees. For, for they typically were very harsh and swift with their judgments. But the Pharisees, on the other hand... They, they actually fought against a lot of these practices during their time. They, they liked to take a more judicial approach, opposing any hasty judgments and as they generally, genuinely desired a just and correct outcome. And yet here we, we see that they, they are going along with the, with the Sadducees, with this farce of a trial. And the reason they are doing so is because of their hatred for this man not to mention their fear of the masses. Bottom line is this. These men needed 
to quickly formulate a charge and bring it before Pilate, the Roman governor, by early morning. And the reason it needed to be done by early morning is so that Christ could be crucified on Friday. Because if they couldn't do that, then they would have to wait until after the Sabbath. And by that time, support could be mounted in Jesus' favor. And so haste was needed if their plan was to succeed. So let's, let's look at this trial. Look at, look at verses 59 through 63. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false witnesses against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. As you can see, this trial was not going according to plan. These, these men who, who already had an outcome in mind could not find the, the corroborating witnesses in order to condemn Jesus. And that's really what they needed. They needed witnesses to agree on their testimony. You see, two witnesses, if not three, was what was needed. Look, look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says this, One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was a common practice throughout all of Israel's history. And even in this kangaroo court, these men, they were looking for some type of legitimacy in order to sentence Jesus. They need something that they could, that they could bring to both Pilate as well as to the masses. Something that would justify their actions. But, but none of these false witnesses could get their story straight. Until finally, we, we saw that there were two who came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Of course, these men were merely twisting Jesus' words. For, for the temple that he had spoken of was his own body. Yet this seemed to be the first accusation that had gained any traction. And, and desecration, let alone destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem, was no doubt a capital offense. Something that they could put Jesus to death. Perhaps this would be the charge that would do Jesus in. And yet, what do we see our Lord doing? What is Jesus doing in the face of such accusations? He remained silent. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
Jesus did not defend himself. Why? Why would he not explain what he meant by his words? Why would he not plead his case? The answer is simple. Because he too sought the outcome that these wicked men desired. He wanted to be condemned. For for he knew that that was the only way that he could rescue his people. That he needed to go to the cross to die for the sins of his children. And so he received these accusations in order that his saints, his people, might stand blameless before their God when they are accused by the great accuser. Well, this silence only seemed to frustrate the high priest. Caiaphas wanted some answers from this man. He he wanted a charge that would stick, a charge that he could bring to Pilate and secure an execution on that day. Would these two witnesses be enough? Would Pilate buy in? Would the crowds be appeased once they had found out? Perhaps, but perhaps not. And so in a move of desperation, Caiaphas gets to the heart of the matter. Look look at what he said. Look Look at the rest of verse 63. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the Christ. The Son of God. Weak accusations. An accused man who won't say a word. And the clock was ticking. And so in a a last-ditch effort, the high priest made a bold move. He, He gets to the core of what seemed to be the topic of interest wherever Jesus went. Is he or is he not the Messiah? Is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? What did Caiaphas mean when he said those words? The term Christ means anointed one, or the one who would be king over Israel. The Christ would, be, would, would, would come from David's lineage, and he would assume David's throne. Similarly, the the, the title Son of God was a common reference taken from Psalm 2 to refer to the coming Messiah. And so when Caiaphas asked this question, he didn't necessarily have in mind what, what we would be thinking today when we say the Son of God. He didn't understand this term as some sort of claim of being God. He he just wanted to know if Jesus had declared himself as the Messiah the anointed king of Israel. But but look at the way that Caiaphas framed this question. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. This wording that Caiaphas chose was was a legal expression that, that could force an answer out of someone. For if Jesus now refused to speak, 
He could be found in contempt of court and guilty of breaking an oath to God. You see, this, this question and him charging him under the living God, it would do one of three things. One, if, if Jesus refused to answer, then, then he could be punished to the full extent of the, of the charges that were brought before him. But if he did answer, and if he denied the charge, denied that he was the Messiah, well then the trial could end, and he could be released. But... His credibility and his influence among the people would be diminished as he would no longer be seen as a Messiah. And finally, if he spoke up and he said, Yes, I am the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, well, then the trial would continue until he was proven to be a liar and a false Messiah. He could then be charged with blasphemy for having misrepresented God. And this was the charge that these men were looking for. A charge that would not only appease the masses, but, but would also appease Pilate as well. For now Caiaphas could deliver this man with a charge of treason. For by making the claim that he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus was declaring that, that he, and not Caesar, was the king of the Jews. How would our Lord respond now that he was pressed to speak? Look at verse 64. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Yes, it is as you say. Jesus would not deny the truth about who he is. You see, this is the charge that he wanted to be convicted of. This is the charge for which he wanted to be condemned. For it is the truth about who he is. I mean, think about all we've been through as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, this was the question that Matthew had been answering throughout the first half of this book. Who is this Jesus? This was the answer that Peter gave when he made his good confession. When he said to his master, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus wanted this to be the reason why he went to the cross. And so he answered, yes, it is as you say. But not only does he make this good confession, but he then expands upon it. Look at the rest of this verse. Look at the rest of verse 64. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, Caiaphas' view of who the Christ would be, of who the Son of God would be, was inadequate. His conception of the Messiah was too low. And so Jesus introduced another title, a title for which he would stake his claim, the Son of Man. And this is a direct reference from the book of Daniel. 
Look at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What is described in these verses is more than just some earthly kingdom. This son of man approaches the ancient of days riding on the clouds of heaven. He is then given authority and glory and sovereign power over everyone. There's not a nation, there's not a tribe, there's not a tongue that will not bow the knee to this man. In fact, they will worship him. Think about that. They will worship him. And he will establish a kingdom that is eternal. A kingdom that that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. Do you see what Jesus is saying to these men? He is making it explicitly clear what this confession that he is the son of God means. Yes, Caiaphas, it is as you say, but it is so much more. And you yourself will witness me sitting at the right hand of my father. And you, Caiaphas, will face my judgment. Not only was Jesus claiming to be the Christ... But he had basically told these men that he was God incarnate. And that they would be the ones who would be judged by him. Here's the issue. This man who was standing before them. This one upon whom they were passing judgment. Is none other than this son of man from Daniel 7. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who holds in his hands all authority. And yet these men had the audacity to put him on trial, and an illegitimate trial at that. But before we condemn these men, We ourselves need to look in the mirror. We must ask ourselves, haven't we done the same exact thing? Haven't we put ourselves in this position of authority to judge? Are we not the judge and jury? Dear friends, every time you believe that, that your view of what is right and what is wrong, that it supersedes what God has declared then you are standing in the same exact place of those men who were accusing your king. Every time you pass judgment on on God's word, you are telling your Lord that, that he is guilty and should be condemned. Every time you sin, whether it is a little white lie or some heinous crime, 
It's as if you have taken up a hammer and have pounded in a little further the nails that pinned Jesus to the cross. Listen, because of our rebellious hearts, we, we say to our master, you claim to have lordship over my life, and because of that, I condemn you. And yet Jesus, he welcomes the accusations with open arms. For it is the truth about who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And though on this day he stood accused, he did so gladly. Because it was the very thing that was needed in order to rescue us. It was what was necessary to carry out God's redemptive plan. He needed to be condemned. Look at the, look at the end of our passage. Look at verses 65 through 68. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? The accused now stands condemned. The confession of our Lord gave them the ammunition that they needed, and then some. For Caiaphas knew exactly what Christ meant when he, he claimed to be the Son of Man. They all did. This is why Caiaphas tore his garments. For this man was claiming to be God, and that could not be tolerated. And so this, this council, this kangaroo court, would decide this man's fate. They would condemn him and, and say, he is worthy of death. Brothers, sisters, I, I hope you understand that this trial was necessary. That it was essential that our Lord stood condemned. And not just for any crime, but for the truth of who he is. That he is the Christ. That he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate and our King. You see, every time we sin, we are declaring the opposite. We, we, we say, you're not God, I am. You're not the King, I am. And that is why it was necessary that, that our Savior stood condemned. Condemned for the truth of who he is. So that he could pay the penalty for those sins. So that those who repent, those who turn away from their own claims to be God, their own claims to be king, so that they can be declared Innocent on that day of judgment. An innocent man 
stood condemned so that the condemned could be declared innocent. And I can see no better reason than for us to repent, to turn away from our claims, our claims to be masters of our own lives, our claims to be kings over our own kingdoms. And so that's the call. The call is to repent. Repent and find forgiveness. For you have a king who took your place. You have the son of God who stood condemned for you. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now as as a broken people, a, a people who try to sit in the seat of judgment that was meant for you. Because of our own pride, we, we try to reverse the roles. It should have been us who were on trial that night. It, it should have been us who had been found guilty and condemned. And that is why we praise your name. For it was your son who, who stood in our place taking on the accusations of these false witnesses. And it was your son who stood condemned, not because of some trumped-up charge, but because of the truth of who he is, because of his own confession. He did all of this so that we could be declared justified in your sight. And for that, we are eternally, eternally grateful. And so we ask you now that you would help us to repent, that your Holy Spirit would change us from within, humbling us and allowing your Son to sit upon the throne of our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen.